You guys know I love that movie, so any chance I get to show a clip from The Wizard of Oz, I do it. But you'll probably never see me show a clip of those flying monkeys, because when I was a kid, those things freaked me out. Anybody else have nightmares about flying monkeys from The Wizard of Oz? Yes, I still have those. I don't like the flying monkeys. Well, why did I show that this morning? You're probably going to have that little song. I'm not going to sing it, but you'll probably have that stuck in your head today, because the title of our message today in Revelation 21 is The Real Emerald City. And when that movie came out in 1939, it was, was based on a book by a, name, uh, a man that wrote it named Frank Baum. Um, he wrote it, it was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and then they made the movie. And, and as I studied the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and what we're going to look at today, I could not help but think about that scene from the movie as they were going to this capital city of Oz, the Emerald City, and made out of jewels and what that was like. And I wondered, did he get that idea from the Bible right here in Revelation, chapter 21? Because I believe today... We're we're going to learn some incredible things about the real Emerald City today. Um, the New Jerusalem, the capital city, not of Oz, but the capital city of eternity for all believers. Now last week in Revelation uh, chapter 21, we did the first eight verses, Pastor Barry did, and it began to describe our eternal home. And we learned that all things are going to be made new. And in the context of where we're at in Revelation, I mean the rapture of the church happened a long time ago back in chapter 4. Uh, we went through chapter 6 through 18, which was the seven years of tribulation. We learned a lot of things about what's going to go on in the earth during that point. Uh, then we, at chapter 19, saw the second coming of Christ, him bringing in his thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom. Uh, then, you know, he deals with Satan once and for all, casts him in the lake of fire. Now, chapter 21, we saw last week a new heaven and a new earth. And he, we kind of talked about that a little bit, but today we get the details of that new heaven and that new earth and the, and the new Jerusalem that was just mentioned last week. Now we're going to see some very, very specific details in the scripture of what that new heaven we're going to spend eternity in, what that new Jerusalem is, is going to look like. I don't know how you guys are when you go on like a vacation, but I, I'm one of these kind of people, if I'm going to go on vacation somewhere, especially if I've never been there, I'm on the internet for days and weeks searching out everything there is to do. Anybody else like that? I mean, like, I, I don't want to miss anything. I want to get excited about where I'm going. Now, other people, how many of you guys are like this? You just kind of get in the car and you drive and you figure it out when you get there. That would freak me out. I'm so glad my wife allows me to kind of look down the road and, and get the details so when we get there, you know, I've pretty much got every day planned out. It's not much of a vacation when you're with me, really. You know, we, we like, Dameron's need vacations from the vacation because I've got every day planned out and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to go here. But it gets me excited about where we're going and I don't want to miss anything. I think that's what God is wanting to do for us today as believers. I mean, if we're going to spend all eternity in a place, don't you want to know a little something about it? Amen? I know I do. And so God is going to take some time this morning to give us some great details about the new Jerusalem, about heaven, what we can look forward to and get excited about as believers in Christ. Because a lot of people ask the question, what is heaven going to be like? I mean, what are we going to do? What are we not going to do? What, what's it going to be like if I'm going to live there forever? What can I expect? And, and the truth is there are a lot of misconceptions about heaven you know, it seems like every joke about heaven, Peter shows up at the pearly gate meeting you, yet you don't find that anywhere in the Bible that he's the one meeting you at the pearly gates. We'll find out who will meet us at pearly gates today. You know, and, and there's misconceptions about heaven that we're going to be like little angels floating around on clouds with gold slippers playing the harp. And, you know, stuff like that. And then, and then there's some realities about heaven. You know, people talk about walking the streets of gold and seeing the pearly gates. And those 
are some of the things we're going to learn today and realities. And I think it's really going to clear up and answer some questions. Biblically, what is heaven going to be like? The new Jerusalem, the capital city. And so we're going to look at four facts today, if you're taking notes, and I hope you will, that John gives us. The first one, at beginning in verse 9, John gives us the description, the general description of heaven, the new Jerusalem that we're going to live in. We'll pick it up in chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me. This would be John, talking to John, this angel, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. This is the capital city we'll live in for all eternity. Descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And the 12, and, and 12 gates at the gates and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations besides just the 12 gates. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So John begins to give us a description, uh, a general, and he's get, get more specific about this New Jerusalem, the capital city where we will live. Um, but I want to remind you, we're mainly going to focus on the New Jerusalem because that's what this passage focuses on. But not only is there going to be a New Jerusalem, but remember last week, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we don't know a lot of details about that, but I believe we'll be able to explore all of those places as well, even though our main dwelling place will be in this new Jerusalem. Now, verse 9, John gets a personal tour of this capital city, New Jerusalem. It's an angel. It's one of the angels we met before that had one of the seven bowl judgments. We don't know which one, but it's one of them. And he's like this personal tour guide for John, showing him around heaven, showing him around the New Jerusalem, what it's going to be like. It, it reminds me of a, a story of this elderly couple. They'd been married like 60 plus years, and they both passed away about the same time. And they went to, to heaven, and there at the pearly gates was an angel that met them and says, I'm going to be your personal tour guide. I'm going to show you all around heaven where you get to live forever. And so they, they're walking around, and they, they're seeing the streets of gold, and, and he's like, here's your, here's your mansion, here's your dwelling place over here. And the older gentleman and said, man, this is incredible. I mean, this is unbelievable beyond what I could ever imagine. How much is this going to cost me? And the angel's like, nothing, it's free. This is heaven, it's free. And he's like, wow. And then they go a little bit further, and there's this incredible banquet table with the most incredible food on it in heaven. And he's like, you know, you can eat any of this that you want. And the guy's like, yeah, well, how much is this buffet? And he's like, it's free, it's heaven. You can enjoy all of it. He's like, well, I noticed that I don't see, you know, any fat-free food on this table. You know, I don't see any yogurt. I don't see any bran muffins. And he's like, oh, you don't need to worry about this. That This is heaven. You can eat all you want, as much as you want. You, you know, you're never going to gain a pound. Wouldn't that be cool? You know, you're never going to gain a pound. You're not going to get any older. You're not going to die. This is heaven. And it's all free. And the older gentleman looked at his wife and he said, if you wouldn't have fed me those bran muffins and vitamins, we could have been here 10 years ago. <laughs> Evan's going to be incredible. Now John gets this bird's eye view of the New Jerusalem in verse 10. 
it says that the angel takes him up to a high mountain so he can see this incredible city. I don't know how many times you guys have ever driven up like to Genesee and you get up there and if you turn around you can see the entire city of Denver. It's a pretty incredible view to, to go up there and see the whole city and that's kind of what's happening to John here in, in verse 10 as he sees this whole city of the New Jerusalem. Now the word city is found 11 times in the final two chapters of your Bible that we're looking at in chapter 21 and 22. I point that out because some scholars, some commentators and people read chapter 21 and 22 and they think that New Jerusalem is just symbolic and that it's just spiritual and it's not a literal city. And, and we've talked about this a lot in Revelation that sometimes John is being literal and sometimes he is being symbolic. And, and here's our approach to the word of God. We always take it literally unless the text demands otherwise. Amen? And, and when there's a reason why 11 times he says it's a city. I believe it is a literal place that John is describing. This is not just symbolic or spiritual. It's literal. And in verse 9, he notice he describes this city as the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, those of you that have been with us in the study, that is usually the description for the church. So that might be a little confusing. He says, hey, look at this literal city, but then he calls the city the, the bride, the lamb's wife. So the question we have to ask is, okay, so is this a city or is this people? And you know what the answer to that is? Yes. It's both a city and it's describing the people that live in the city. The see, this eternal city is not only the home of the bride, but it is the bride. Your city, a city is not just buildings. A city is people. It's about the people that live and dwell in that city. And New Jerusalem will be a holy city with a holy God with his holy people. That's how this is described here. It's much like the church today. You know, th what we meet in here, I try to be very careful that I don't say, hey, I'll meet you at the church. This is not a church. This is a school. Now, why is it a school? Because most of the week, students meet here, and it's a school. That's what makes it a school. But on Sunday, it becomes a church, not because of the building, but because of every one of you. Because the church is God's people. It's the believers. And that's the same thing happening here. New Jerusalem is called the Lamb, the Bride's Wife, because of the people that are there, which is the church. The believers. All believers. Old Testament and New Testament. Now, it's, we're all together as the family of God. And it's interesting as John describes this here. We don't know this for sure, but in verse 10, did you notice? It describes the New Jerusalem like it's descending out of heaven. And some scholars believe that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and that the new Jerusalem may be kind of suspended in between the two. Almost like a bridge between the new heaven and the new earth because it describes it as descending out of heaven. We don't know for sure, but the language there lends us to believe that. Now in verse 11, John attempts to describe the indescribable. I mean, our eternal home that we can't even imagine. And, and he simply just describes it, and he says that it has the glory of God. He's like, the best way I can describe it is this city has the glory of God. You know, in the Old Testament, God's glory and presence dwelt inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And then in the temple. If you remember that, say yes. We know today the glory of God resides in us. His spirit is inside of us as believers. We are the temple. But one day in eternity in the new Jerusalem, it's going to be right out in the open for all of us to see and all of us to joy. And face to face, we're going to have this personal relationship with God and his glory is going to fill the entire city. You say, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is simply the radiance of God. It's the Shekinah glory is a theological word maybe you've heard before. It's the brightness of God's glory. Anytime, you know, in the Bible where you see God show up, how does he show up? 
as blazing, blinding light. And that's what's going to be permeating through this eternal city, New Jerusalem, the glory of God. And John goes on to describe it in verse 11 the best he can. He says it's like the light of the city shining out of the city is like a jasper stone. And, and, and he says here it's clear as crystal. Now, if you know anything about a jasper stone, it's really not clear. It's kind of more of an orangish red, and it's more of a solid color. But notice he says here, he doesn't say it is a jasper stone, but it's like a jasper stone in that it's a beautiful jewel. And many writers believe that what he's probably describing here and didn't have the word back then is diamond. It's like our diamond today. And the, and the glory of God is shining through a diamond with the most incredible brilliance that you can ever imagine. I mean, we could literally call this new Jerusalem the crown jewel of, cre of the new creation, this new Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to the Smithsonian Institute, uh, but in the Smithsonian, there is what's called on display the Hope Diamond. Any of you guys ever seen the Hope Diamond? A few of you have. The Hope Diamond, it's also uh, known as its French name, La Bleu de France. I practiced that this week for you guys. And uh, it's 45 carats. Okay, so guys, if you're like engaged to get married and your wife wants one of these, you've got to save your pennies because it's worth $250 million. It's a 45-carat rock, I mean, this diamond. But you know what? That is nothing compared to this new Jerusalem the diamond that it's going to be and what it's going to look like. You're going to understand that a little more in just a minute when you understand the size of the city that we're going to live in. You know, and when, as I was studying this week, I could not help but think of what Jesus said back in John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And remember what Jesus said? I go to prepare a place for you. Y'all, listen. What we're studying today, this is the place. This is what he's been preparing. This is what we have to be excited about and look forward to for all eternity in Revelation here. In verse 12, he describes the city as having 12, or having 12 gates. So there's a high wall around the city, and this, this, these walls have 12 gates. And we're going to see in just a moment in verse 21, they're made of pearl. This is where you get the pearly gates. It is biblical. But you'll also notice there's no mention of Peter standing at the gates, but rather that each, at each one of these gates, there's an angel standing at these 12 gates. But what is very interesting in verse 12, it tells us that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are in each one of these gates. One name on each of the 12 gates. And we know from the Bible, the nation of Israel was represented by the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's 12 sons. And I think we have a picture. If we could put this picture up here. This next one, this is just kind of a diagram of the city and the 12 gates around the city and one of the names of each of the sons representing Israel in heaven for all eternity on these gates. Now you might wonder why does God choose to put these names on the gates? Well, I believe it's an eternal reminder to us of the Jewish people that these were God's chosen people before the Gentiles. I mean, this is where our Old Testament came from, from the Jewish people. This is where the prophets that, that, that told of the Messiah to come, Jesus, it came from the Jewish people. We must never, ever forget, and I am passionate about this, the importance of the Jewish people, God's chosen people. God has not turned his back 
on his people. And we've read a lot about that in Revelation and the tribulation, how he will begin to work again when the church is gone. He will begin to work again through the Jewish people. And so they are very important. And in my opinion, and I think it's a biblical one, this is one of the reasons. You, you know, there was a recent debate about, you know, is America like wanting to turn their back on Israel? And, you know, some of our leaders were saying some things that got people uncomfortable. And you, maybe you wonder, where does that come from? That's a biblical principle, you all. When America, if America ever turns its back on Israel, in my opinion, we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. That, that is a spiritual thing. Because the Bible says way back in the Old Testament, God told Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So we, if you have an opportunity, do everything you can to encourage a good relationship with Israel. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, say yes. So I want to throw that in there without getting too political this morning. But verse 13, these three gates, or these 12 gates, notice it says in verse 13, there's three on each side. And we have that on the diagram here, north, east, south, west. Now that's not an accident or a coincidence. Because if you study the Bible, you'll find in the Old Testament, I've said this many times, we serve a God of order and pattern and consistency. And in the Old Testament, when God told them to set up the tabernacle, guess what he told them to do? Three tribes on the north, three on the west, three on the east, three on the south. It was just a foreshadowing of what's going to be eternally in place in the new Jerusalem in heaven. And the Bible is consistent. Now you may wonder, why do we need gates in heaven? I mean, why do we need these gates? I mean, in John's day when he was writing, gates provided protection for the city. And I think that there is that example that we'll, we know will be protected in heaven for all eternity. But you'll notice in verse 25 that we'll look at in a minute, these gates never close. They're always open. They're always open. And so I think these gates are, are there, but they let us know that we'll not be confined to the new Jerusalem. That, we, that will be our main dwelling place where we'll live, but we'll be able to come and go and have freedom to explore the new heaven and the new earth beyond what the Bible even tells us details about. I mean, it's going to be, if you like to explore, you're going to get to do that for all eternity. So don't worry about being cramped in a small city that's overcrowded and you don't get, you're, you're going to have a lot of places to move around and explore. Now, verse 14 also tells us not only are there 12 gates to the wall, but there are 12 something else. Did you see that? What are they? Foundations. Now usually a house only has one foundation, but our new Jerusalem is going to have 12 foundations, and not only is it going to have 12 foundations, but do you notice what is written on the foundations? The names of, guess who? The 12 apostles. So just like the gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel representing the Old Testament and the Old Testament believers, you have the foundations with the 12 apostles, which the church was built upon, which is a representation, I believe, of us as New Testament believers and the church, and we'll have both of those existing together in that city for all eternity, and the names of the apostles are inscribed in the foundation of the New Jerusalem. I remember when I was a kid growing up in uh, Oklahoma and Tulsa, we lived in the same house for 20 years. And I remember that we had a piece of sidewalk in our backyard that kind of went around our house and it, it crumbled and it broke up and, and my dad had to pay somebody to come in and fill that in. And just after they got done, my sister and I, we were like, I don't know, like six and eight. We were waiting inside and just as soon as the guys left, you know what we did. We ran out there and we carved our name in that and put the date on it. And I, I'd like to go back there. I haven't seen that house in 20 plus years and see if it's still there. It probably won't last for all eternity, but these names of the apostles are carved and etched into the foundation of the New Jerusalem for all eternity. And again, why? 
Because just like the gates represent, I believe, the Old Testament believers, I believe the foundation represents the New Testament believers. You have the Old Testament and New Testament, Jerusalem and Israel and the church coming together, living together in the same city as one. There's not going to be any Jew and Gentile in heaven. And we're just going to all be God's people. Won't that be cool? I mean, we're just going to all be equal in heaven, God's people with him forever. And I think the picture God is painting for us here, if you think about it, this is really cool. It's a little deep, but it's really cool if you can grab it. Our original knowledge of God came through the gates of the Jewish people. But our foundation today is built upon the gospel which came from the 12 apostles. And we're gonna see a picture of that in this city, Jerusalem, for all eternity as a reminder. And maybe a couple of verses you've heard before will take on new meaning in the light of what we've just talked about. Hebrews eleven eight says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place he would receive as an inheritance, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that's what we're studying this morning in Ephesians in the New Testament. Paul said this in Ephesians 2.19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we see a literal representation of that in the New Jerusalem. So that, that was one of my longest points. So don't freak out. They're not all going to be that long. Okay? Let's go to number two. We've seen the description of the New Jerusalem. Then John gives us the, the exact dimensions. I mean, God is so detailed about this. He gives us the dimensions of this city, picking it up in verse 15. And he who talked with me had a golden reed, this would be the angel to John, to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, its breadth or its width and height are equal. Did y'all catch that? I'll explain it here in just a second. Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, or the same, as an angel. And so he gives us very detailed descriptions of the dimensions. Henry Morris, one writer, said this, the new Jerusalem is composed of such beautiful materials, such unique construction, and such amazing dimensions, it is almost beyond human comprehension. I think we would all agree with that. In verse 15, the angel, who is John's tour guide, has noticed in his hand a golden reed. And in the, uh, in the biblical times, a reed was like our measuring stick today. And that's how they would measure things. And he's going to measure the dimensions of the city. Now, here's the key to understanding this new Jerusalem and the size. In verse 16, it says the city is going to be laid out how? Like a square. It's going to be a square. That word square can also mean cube. It is going to be a perfect cube. And I've got a little picture. I've, I've tried to put some pictures of some different artist uh, renditions of what the scriptures are teaching that the new Jerusalem is not going to just be flat. It's going to be a massive cube, like big, huge Rubik's cube. Okay. But it's not going to be made out of plastic. It's going to be made out of these incredible jewels. And again, God is a, our God is a God of order and pattern and consistency. And this really ought not surprise us if you know anything about the Old Testament temple. Because in 1 Kings chapter 6, the Bible says when Solomon's temple was built, the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the glory of God rested, his presence, the Bible says the Holy of Holies was, 20, it was a 20 cubits cube. 
which was 30 feet. It was 30 feet wide, uh, 30 feet long, and 30 feet high. It was a, a perfect cube. Now, it was only 30 feet. This one is much larger, but it's where the glory of God is going to rest. And so God is doing the same thing again. And we see here the dimensions. The new Jerusalem is going to be 12,000 furlongs. And your obvious question to that is, how long is a furlong? I've heard of that in horse racing, you know, and, there, and that has something to do with it. A furlong is 600 feet. Now, it's 12,000 of those. 12,000 times 600 feet. That's about 1,500 miles if you kind of round it off for easy math. 1,500 miles. Now, it's not just going to be 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide. It's going to be 1,500 miles what? High. It's a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. Now, some of you still might be looking at that and going, now, is that really big enough to hold all the believers, all of God's people from all of human history? I mean, are we going to be cramped? I mean, what, what's that going to be like? Well, Randy Alcorn in his book called Heaven says this. I don't want to give it to you. We need not worry that heaven will be crowded. The ground level of the city will be over 2 million square miles. 40 times bigger than England, 15,000 times bigger than London, 10 times larger than France and Germany, and much larger than India. But remember, that's just the ground level. It also goes 60 or 1,500 feet or miles, excuse me, high. 1,500 miles high. Now, we don't know this for sure, but when Jesus said, you know, I go to prepare your home, there are many mansions, okay? we got to be careful with that word mansions, all right? Some people get greedy about that and go, oh, sweet, I've always wanted to live in a mansion. It's going to be, mansion in the Bible means dwelling places, okay? It's going to be really cool, but it might not be exactly what you have in your mind. And there are some scholars that believe that this cube is going to almost have, have like a honeycomb effect to it and all these dwelling places in it and maybe there's level on level on level 1500 miles high where all the people can dwell and they but remember we're in our glorified bodies we can float around man if you ever wanted to fly you're going to get to okay i mean you can move around you can move up you can move down remember when jesus in his glorified body he just appeared on the scene wherever he wanted to be walked through walls that's how we're going to be. And so we don't know exactly for sure, but some believe that maybe there's going to be different floors. If that were true, you could put 600,000 stories high in the New Jerusalem. That's a pretty big city. 600,000 stories. So there's going to be plenty of room. Now, verse 17 tells us that not only is there going to be the city, but there's going to be a wall around it. And the wall is 144 cubits. Well, what's a cubit? A cubit is 18 inches. And in the Bible times, uh, 18 inches is from the tip of a man's uh, elbow to the tip of his finger. is 18 inches long. And that is a cubit. And there's going to be 144 of those, which equals 216 feet. So there's going to be a 216 foot high wall around this city. And you go, man, I've never seen a wall that high. I mean, that seems really high. Well, not when you have a 1,500 mile high city. That's just like a little hedge, you know, to maybe plant some flowers on. That's what the wall's going to be. And so John gives us the description. He gives us the very specific dimensions, how large this city is going to be, plenty big enough to hold everybody, all of God's people. And then, number three, he gives us the details of the material that is used, that God has used to construct this city. We pick it up in verse 18. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. 
The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald. There's the emerald city. And this is not just emerald, it's got all kinds of jewels. The fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I mean, God is so detailed in how this city is made. And John gives us the details of the material. In verse 18, he says the wall is uh, of jasper, which, again, names of, of jewels and emeralds have changed over the centuries. It, it, maybe he's describing a, a diamond here because he says it's clear. And then he says that the streets are gold, but they're not solid. They're clear like glass. I mean, this truly is the real emerald city and then some, beyond what we can imagine. Verse 19 to 20, he says the 12 foundations that have the 12 apostles' names, notice they're decorated with these 12 different precious stones. And he gives us every one of these stones and, and, and with what they are. So, you know, I, I originally thought we would be finishing up Revelation in just a couple of weeks. All we have is one chapter left. But I really feel like the Lord is leading me to take the next 12 weeks and we're going to study each one of these stones one at a time. <laughs> And then right after that, I'm going to write a book that's how to kill a growing church in 12 weeks. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. The truth is, we, we don't really know all of the reasons why God decorates these. And there, there, there's been different scholars that have, you know, guessed at it. One thing that might jump out to you that is interesting is that eight of these 12 stones are the exact eight stones that were in the high priest's breastplate. So there's some kind of correlation there, but then there's four of them that we really don't know why they're mentioned, and, and, and really, we're just kind of guessing what this is going to be. So we're not going to take 12 weeks, and we're not even going to take a lot of time this morning. But here's what I think, more than anything else, and, and it's, John's telling us this. Y'all remember, this thing is clear as glass, and then you've got all these jewels and all the foundations, and what is it that's shining inside of this city? The glory of God the Shekinah glory, the radiance of God, and it's bursting out of every seam of the city and shooting through all of these precious jewels. I mean, y'all, we cannot even fathom and imagine what this is going to look like. I, I really don't even believe we could, with our human eyes and our physical eyes, look at it. That's why we need glorified bodies to be able to even see it with glorified eyes because we know in the Bible no one was able to look at the face of Jesus, look at the face of God. And, and it's, it's just these stones are just going to radiate the incredible blue, beauty and glory of God throughout all eternity. It's going to be incredible, indescribable, amazing, beyond what we can even imagine. I like the way one writer, John Wolverd, said it. He said, the constant mention of transparency indicates that the city is designed to transmit the glory of God in the form of light without hindrance. And this thing is going to be beaming for all eternity. It reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know about y'all, but as I studied this this week, I was just like, wow. I cannot wait to see this place. I cannot wait to see this God. I cannot wait to be a part of this for all eternity. I mean, I am so glad we're out of chapter 6 through 18 and all the judgment. Now we're in the good stuff. We save the best for last, the good stuff.
Now, you've heard of heaven having pearly gates, you know. Is that real? It is. There it is, right there in verse 21. It says the gates are made of pearl. But did you notice that? They're not just made of pearl. They're, each gate is made out of one pearl. A giant, 12 giant pearls. Man, I'd like to see the oyster that that came from. I mean, this thing is massive. Now, we don't know for sure, but I, I want to take just a, a bit of liberty if I could. And I think, I, I think there's biblical evidence to what I'm going to say. <laughs> but I, I think there's a picture that God may be trying to paint for us here with the pearly gates. Why are the gates going to be pearl? And we know these are gates that are open day and night, and we know that throughout eternity, we're going to mainly dwell in the new Jerusalem, but we're going to be able to go in and out all the time into the new heaven and the new earth. And every day that we go out, we go out a pearly gate, and every time we come in, we come in through a pearly gate. And I mean, we always got to go in and out these pearly gates. What, what's up with that? And would you just think with me for a second? You know how a pearl comes into existence? A tiny grain of sand finds its way inside of an oyster. And to that oyster, that tiny grain of sand is a great irritant. It's a parasite. And so to deal with that parasite, that irritating grain of sand, that oyster will begin to secrete this fluid that begins to cover it and then over time, it turns into a pearl that is of great value. And if you could just go with me for a second and think about this. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 45? He talked about the pearl of great price. And listen to what he said. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls to buy, who when he has found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had to buy it because it's so valuable. Now, I know many times we hear that verse, and we think that that verse is talking about, you know, people who are unsaved, and then they find Jesus and understand what he did, and they say, I'll sell everything to have that. And I do think it has that meaning. But like so many scriptures, I think there's more meaning than just that. I think there's a double meaning. And I think we can flip it around, and we can say that Jesus may very well be the merchant, and he's looking for a pearl of great price. And when he finds one, he's willing to give everything he has to have it, are y'all know where I'm going with this? Maybe every time in eternity when we go out the pearly gate and we come in the pearly gates, we are reminded that when Jesus found us, we were irritating parasites in our sin. I'm sorry. I want to encourage you with that thought this morning. But you know what? That's what the Bible describes. It's got even worse language than that to describe us. That when we were in our sin without God, we were sinners separated from him and we were just an irritating piece of sand, a parasite. And Jesus loved us enough to cover us in his righteousness. And we became pearls of great price. That he was willing to give everything on the cross to save us. And maybe that is going to be a reminder to us for all eternity every time we go in and out of the pearly gates. I don't know, but yo, that gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Just thinking about what he did for us. And then finally, we've seen the description of the city, the dimensions of the city, the details of the material, and then we close with the delights of the new Jerusalem, our eternal home, the capital city, the delights. Verse 22 to 27, but I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb, it's the light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. 
And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Many of the details of heaven, or excuse me, the delights of heaven, are actually described by John by what will not be in heaven. The delights of heaven are found in what will not be in heaven. Verse 22, we see the first thing that's not going to be in heaven. There's not going to be a temple in heaven. You know why? We don't need a temple. Because the temple and the tabernacle was the place that you could go to worship God. Because that's the only place he dwelt in the Old Testament. And only the high priest once a year got to go in the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And, and in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple, there's no tabernacle. Because we are in the presence of God all the time. Isn't that going to be awesome? We don't need a high priest, we don't need anybody else, we don't need to go to a place. We're right there with God in his glory. We're experiencing that. We read this last week in chapter 21, verse 3, and it says, At that time, the tabernacle of God will be with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's going to be incredible. That's a delight of heaven that we get to be in his very presence every day. I mean, you ever have days that you just wish for a moment you could just... See God. <laughs> One day we will. Our faith will be made sight, and we will for all eternity. Verse 23 and 25 tells us something else that will not be in heaven that is actually delight. There's no need for the sun or the moon. Now, it doesn't say there won't be a sun or moon. It just says we don't need them. And there's some difference of scholars on whether it will exist or not. But here's the point. There will always be, it'll always be light outside and inside, everywhere. Because we know God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, the Bible says. And so there will be no nighttime. We won't need to rest. We won't need to sleep. We can play all day. We don't need electricity. No electric bills, amen? I mean, no big electric bills in the summer, you know, when you've got to be running the air conditioning because it's been hot. No changing light bulbs. You know, they keep trying to come out with light bulbs. You don't have to change. In heaven, we don't have to change a light bulb. It's always going to be light. You know, I was just noticing, I was out the last couple of evenings, and I, I was like, man, it, what time is it? And it's getting darker earlier and earlier already. And before you know it, it'll get dark at like 3 o'clock. You know, we have that time change. It feels like, you know, you leave work, and it's already dark. And it's like, oh, you know, and it's, it's a bummer. And it'll never be dark, and it'll never get dark, and no daylight savings time. And, you know, parents, you ever say this to your kids? Be in by dark. My mom used to say it all the time. You could play outside, be in the neighborhood, but be in by dark. Okay, let me help you out, mom and dad. Don't say that to your kids in the New Jerusalem because they'll never come in. <laughs> Don't say be in by dark because it ain't going to happen. The, the light is always going to be on. You know, this is, the, this is the real Motel 6 that always leaves the light on. God's light will shine. And, you know, I was thinking this week about how heaven in the gates will never close. It's open 24-7. Y'all remember that movie, Vacation, with Chevy Chase? And they wanted to go to Wally World, and they were so excited, and they get there, and, you know, Wally World is closed, and, you know, he's all mad, and heaven's never going to close. It's always going to be open. The light's always going to be on. Verse 24 and verse 26, don't let this confuse you. Okay, some people get confused by this when it starts talking about nations coming in and out, and they think, is that some new people group that's going to be on the earth? Well, the, the, when it speaks of nations and kings bringing glory into the city, we, we already learned this back in Revelation chapter 7. Nations also is translated peoples. It just means people. And it's people from all nations around the world that have been saved, that are God's people. Revelation 7, 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude John saw in heaven, which no one could number, of all nations." 
tribes, people, and tongues standing before the throne and the Lamb crying with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And this is the fulfillment of what John was seeing. People from all different walks of life and races and nations all together as God's people in heaven. Verse 24 clears it up because it says it's the nations, the people of those who are what? Saved. It's the saved people. There's not, not going to be any unsaved people in heaven. There's not going to be any heathens, you know, on the earth that are going to try to sneak in. This is just talking about God's people. Don't let that confuse you. Now, here's a question a lot of people ask as we bring this to a close this morning. You ever wondered this? <laughs> what language are we going to speak in heaven? I mean, if you've got people from all around the world, what language are we going to speak? Do you know that they tell us today there are over 6,500 languages in the world today? 6,500. I believe in heaven we're all going to speak the same language. One of the reasons I believe that is because if you go back to Genesis chapter 11 verse 1, before, remember the Tower of Babel story where people tried to turn their back on God and build a tower to God? It's called the Tower of Babel because God confounded their languages and, he, and that's where all the languages began. Some people ask that sometimes. You can read about it in the Bible. But before that, everybody spoke the same language. We don't know what that language was, but everybody spoke one same language until the Tower of Babel. I believe that we're going to go back to that in the New Jerusalem, back to one language. You say, okay, well, if we're all going to speak one language in heaven, what's that language going to be? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's a language we know now. I don't know if it's Hebrew. I don't know if it's Greek. I don't know if it's English. We don't, we don't know. It was funny. I was uh, on a mission trip visiting a missionary several years ago in Slovakia, a friend of mine, and I, and I was there, and they speak Slovak. And they were telling me it's one of the hardest languages that exists to learn is the Slovak language. They said most people, it takes them many years to learn the Slovak language. And they were joking with me and they said, and you know that's the language we're going to speak in heaven. And they were just real, you know, determined that we're going to speak Slovak in heaven. And I said, well, how do you know that? And they said, because it will take us all eternity to learn it. And I said, oh, you might have a point there. Now, I think most people believe the language we're going to speak in heaven is the language whatever you speak, you know. And some people might think it's going to be English because... A lot of people think that's the number one language. Do you know that's not the number one language in the world? It's actually number two. About 500 million people speak English. You know what the number one language spoken today is? Mandarin Chinese. One billion people. Next time that commercial for Rosetta Stone comes on, you might want to grab that and start learning Mandarin Chinese for, you know, I don't know. We don't know what it's going to be, but I do believe there's going to be one language. And then I think the most important question as we close this morning and the greatest delight of heaven is knowing who's going to be there. Besides God, who's going to be there? And verse 27 makes it very clear. But there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We've seen that book before, haven't we? We closed chapter 20 and we saw that anyone whose name that was not written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire and were eternally separated from God. But here, praise God, the good news is everyone whose name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's who's going to spend eternity in this incredible, magnificent, glorious city, the new Jerusalem, the capital city of eternity. I mean, the final delight of heaven is the absence of all sin. It's only saints and their Savior. And if you're here this morning, you say, well, does that include me? If your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life, it absolutely does. If it doesn't, it won't. But you know what? Here's the great news. God's still taking reservations. Amen? 
And you can make sure today before you leave by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you to pay for your sins. He saw you as a pearl of great price and he'll cover you in righteousness. He'll make you his child and he'll put your reservation, your name as a citizen of the eternal city of Jerusalem if you'll accept him by faith today. I want to close with this statement. You have it in your notes. I think it was C.S. Lewis maybe that came up with this a long time ago first. And, I, and I've never forgot it. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And the question this morning is, are you prepared? Are you prepared? And what are you doing to help others prepare? And before you just pack up, I want to close with, with this statement. This was um, by a guy named John Corson. He did a study on Revelation. And he wrote this at the end of it. And I thought it was really good. He said this. It is true that the church is to be a hospital where people who are hurting can come and be healed through the body of the great physician, Jesus Christ. It is also true that the church is to be a school where we can study the word of God and show ourselves approved unto God. It is also true that the church is to be a gymnasium where we can not work for, but work out our salvation, as Philippians talks about. It's also to be a place where we can exercise unto godliness. But perhaps the most importantly, the church is to be a travel agency. Booking people on an eternal excursion to heaven. And Revelation 21 and 22 constitute a perfect travel brochure for just such a journey. I hope you're ready for that journey. And I hope you're helping other people be ready for that journey. Would you bow your heads this morning with your heads bowed and your eyes